The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks here tonight. Nice to be back home. A couple weeks ago, when I was in town, I gave a talk about money, which is sort of you know, one of those topics that like, it always feels like we should talk about money, but it's, it's sort of an embarrassing thing. And it's part of a greater area in spiritual life that we don't maybe here at Common Ground talk as much about as maybe we should. The Buddha made a big deal about silas, the Pali word for integrity or living in harmony, living with ethical sort of values. And uh, when we mention, when I mention something like that, you might have a similar reaction that sometimes I have, which is, that's just, you know, yeah, I probably should, but it's not fun to sort of look at my ethical behavior. Or, you know, I'm already a pretty good guy. Probably, I'm not going to get much from taking that up as a spiritual training. So I want to really address that tonight and then hopefully have time to hear from folks in the room. Because the Buddha made a big deal, as I mentioned, about cultivating integrity, cultivating this integrity, integrity around non-harming as a powerful cause for happiness. It's kind of surprising that more than, you know, because in a a big way, places like Common Ground and in more generally Buddhist circles here in the West in particular, we're really into going on retreats. We're really into having nice meditation experiences where the mind gets really still. There's a lot of calm a lot of peace, maybe some lights or something exciting in our meditation. And, and it's, it can even be a little bit cultish where people talk, well, how many retreats have you done? You know, and it's sort of a one-upmanship around, like, that's what it's really about. How much do you sit every day, and how many days out of the year do you go and do a silent meditation retreat? So this is a different, you know, and maybe ultimately a more healthy, wholesome way. It's like, uh, you know, if we want to play king of the heap, how good at you? How good are you at not causing harm, not being complicit for the causes, not being complicit for suffering for yourself or for others, not contributing to suffering for yourself or others? How have you learned to be in relationship with the world in a skillful way that doesn't cause harm? How have you learned to be a sexual being in a way that doesn't cause harm? How have you learned how to consume whatever you consume in ways that don't cause harm? And to really see this as a creative endeavor, you know, like, something that really brings us alive, something that really delivers happiness. Not like a big 
impressive should. You should be good. You shouldn't hit, and you should share. You know, kind of like what we learned in kindergarten. And it's just, oh yeah, I guess I should be good. I should share. I don't want to, you know. So this is a really powerful place to start unpacking in our lives. One of my important teachers in my life, Ajahn Sumedho, um, he's uh, one of our elders now in his mid-80s, maybe even, yeah, I think at least 85 now, Buddhist monk. He's been a Buddhist monk for a long time, but uh, an American. And um, he says, if you're not, if you're frightened by your actions, that's no good. But if you're not frightened by your actions, also not so good, right? Because we know our actions can get us in a lot of trouble, not just what we do, but what we say and what we think even gets us in trouble. And the example I always give, and I'm assuming that this is familiar to some of you, it's like I might be thinking something and sort of feeling, oh, I'm just thinking it. Like if I'm upset at my partner and I'm thinking, you know, you know, whatever negative thought I'm thinking, but it's just a thought. But it's interesting, like if I think that thought enough, I'll blurt it out. Then, then, then there are real implications, right? Because now it's just not a thought in my mind. And so what we think, we tend to say, and what we say, we tend to do. We tend to act on our thoughts. That's how it works. And then there are real implications. We become the one who thought that. We become the one who said that. We become the one who did that. And that impression doesn't matter if anybody saw us doing something bad because the impression is here in the mind, right? This mind in this moment is the continuation of the mind in the previous moment that had that thought, that said that thing, that did that thing. So right now, you, me, all of us, we're the person, this mind, this mind stream, is the mind stream that did all that stuff. We're, in a sense, the continuation of that mind, that heart, that thought all those thoughts, said all those things, and did all those things. Of course, not all of it was bad, hopefully, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Anybody did only bad stuff? We probably wouldn't be alive. Right? In the Buddhist tradition, maybe some of you remember two weeks ago, if you were here when I gave a talk on money, I mentioned the different Buddhist realms of existence. And this is kind of a cosmological view in Buddhism. And it's a good story, like it's a teaching story. I'm not claiming, I don't think we need to claim it's like literally true, but the truth is we don't know what is beyond what we do know. And hopefully we know, or at least we are open to the fact that there is something beyond what we know. It's called humility, right? We only know what we know. And so maybe there are other realms of existence, who knows, like hellish realms or Apparently, there are animal realms, 
and maybe there are celestial, angelic realms, more refined realms of being. Who knows? But it's a useful teaching story around just this uh, sensitivity we have to morality or a sensitivity we can develop as human beings at least, a real sensitivity, a real refinement of sensitivity around harming, around causing harm, participating in the causes for harm. And in the, so in the Buddhist cosmology, you don't actually get to be a human being until you're interested in morality, interested in how you're living and whether it's contributing to your own harm and the harm of others. So not caring. This is how we are. I mean, we slip out of being a human being lots of times because when we're really upset, really angry, really frustrated, you know, you bump your head on the cabinet, you know, and then you knock something over that's valuable and it breaks and it's a mess and you got to clean it up and you're in a hurry and you got, can't find your keys. And pretty soon, you know, if there's one difficult thing after another like that, pretty soon we don't care. We just want to hit somebody or throw something. You know, we slam the door, we use words. We, if somebody happens to be around, we'll just sort of project our anger onto them. We don't really care that they're the recipient of our anger and what that might feel like to them. Right? Anybody had that experience? Well, we're basically, you know, throwing things around. And so in that moment, in those moments, the mind is oblivious to this refinement around sila, around integrity or ethical conduct, as if it doesn't matter that we're participating in the cause of harm. Like we have rights. Life has been unfair to me. Life has been difficult for me. So it's funny how we feel like other people should suffer when we're having a hard time. Like somehow, does that make it better? No, but it's somehow we're oblivious to that, that it, it just compounds the suffering. So the Buddha offers, and it's, you know, it's not Buddhism, these, and you know, the Buddha would say something like, these are natural laws. When we have enough sensitivity as a human being, and we go from sort of having a more animal mind or a hellbound mind, you know, when we're really hurting, nothing matters except to escape the pain we're in. And we don't, it doesn't even matter if somebody else gets hurt. We just want out of our pain. That's called being in a hell realm. Right? Or we're in an animal realm and we're just oblivious to other beings. You know, They're just there to eat, basically, or to eat me, to, so then I avoid them. But when we're a human being, we have enough, we're not completely oppressed by life, by difficulty, by oppression, by poverty, and we can take a look around and we realize even a mosquito, you know, we share something with a mosquito. That mosquito doesn't want to suffer. 
doesn't want to die, in the same way that I don't want to suffer and die. We start having this moral sensitivity. We can't help it. A bird flies into our plate glass window and it breaks our heart a little bit, you know? Enough to want to put a sticker on our window so that the bird doesn't bump into it or, you know, these sort of... There's a big controversy, maybe you remember when they put in the new Viking Stadium downtown and I guess there's a lot of glass. I forget where it is, the glass, but being along the river there, you know, it's a flyway, so a lot of birds fly along the river and crash in, and it was like a certain amount of expense. I forget if they forced the contractors to replace the glass that was easier for the birds to see, so there would be fewer deaths, birds flying into the glass in that big building. But it's this kind of sensitivity, and the thing about these moral trainings is that they're trainings. They're not commandments. It's not thou shall not kill. It's more like Honey, if you really want to be happy, train your heart, train your mind to be really sensitive to the causes for harm, how you contribute to your own harm and how you contribute to others. It's not about making your life more oppressive because we're sensitive. It actually feels better to be sensitive than it does to be oblivious to whether the way we shop contributes to harm or the way we speak contributes to harm or the way we live contributes to harm. It can seem, until we begin to directly explore it, like check it out, it can seem like, well, I just assume be oblivious because as soon as I open that door that everything I think and say and do matters, it's like feels really overwhelming. But that's because we haven't really paid attention to how oppressive it is to try to believe that it doesn't matter. Right? We always feel like thinking it doesn't matter what I think, say, and do is easy. Like being it, that would be sort of in the realms of existence, like an animal or someone in hell, where they're so self absorbed in their own pain or their own instincts like animals just kind of acting out their habits, their instinctual habits. They don't have the space of wisdom, the sensitivity to recognize, oh, it does matter. And that actually feels good to know that it matters. Like we are with our pets or our partners or children, you know, Hopefully, in some moments at least, we know how I show up, how I'm showing up in the relationship really matters. And that more than the value to the other person, I am the more the direct recipient of behaving myself. <laughs> you know, we think, oh, I'm going to behave myself so... You know, it's easier on my partner, or easier on my cat, or easier on the people at work. But interestingly, when we check it out, it's actually easier on ourselves when we're living skillfully with wholesome intentions, not causing harm. For example, we get to sleep at night. 
instead of being tormented <clears throat> by all the bad things we did. Or, if we're not tormented by all the bad things we did, the mind is working really hard to not be sensitive to all the bad things we did or said. right? And that's what I was saying before. We're just not aware of how much work it is to be insensitive to the way we're living. Cut off. And this is, you know, this is really true in terms of how economics work. And it's re- really interesting for all, all of us, you know, in different ways. But, you know, we all have some affluence just being here, healthy enough to be here, have enough space in our life to show up in an evening program like this. There's some affluence. And like, so what do we do with that relative comfort that we have living in an orderly, relatively orderly place for most people, not everyone? Lawful place or, you know, where things are, it's not a war zone for most people here in this area. So if we have that relative comfort, what is the responsibility that goes with it? And is there a way of taking on that responsibility that's really enlivening? It's like, in Buddhist terms, it's sort of like self-esteem. Knowing that I'm devoted to non-harming, knowing that I'm using sensitivity, interest, to get better, knowing that I'll never live without causing harm, right? We, we're in a realm, being a human beings, where life eats life, basically. You know, I'm reading this book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Overstory, um, just won the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, it's, in part, it's really a beautiful book in so many different ways, but it's, he conveys a lot of the science of trees, of forests, in the book. Um, even though it's uh, fiction. But the science is real, that he's kind of conveying through the storytelling. And, you know, it's like where most of our structures are built out of wood. A lot of trees got cut down. And it's not just the trees get, that get cut down, right? The whole ecosystems, countless beings get destroyed when forests are cut down. So there's no way, I mean, even if we're vegan, fields get plowed, worms get cut. You know, any number of creatures are destroyed, even the trucks driving the veggies into the cities and all the destruction that is implied with that. <coughs> so this is the interesting thing about the training to become morally sensitive. And the encouragement is just to check it out. Like as we become more morally sensitive, we undertake the training to refrain from harming. We undertake the training to not take things that haven't been offered to us. We undertake the training to not cause harm with our sexual activities or sexual energy even. And we undertake the training not to cause harm with our speech, which would also include not saying what needs to be said can cause harm, or even saying the right thing, the appropriate thing, but saying it in an 
it in an inappropriate way can cause harm, like being a little bit harsh. And the fifth is undertaking the training not to intoxicate the mind. Not that it itself is unwholesome, getting high, getting drunk or whatever, but it just makes it more easy to cause harm because the mind can't. It's sort of not respecting the value of sensitivity, of clarity. Because if we live with an attitude that it's okay to be oblivious, and whatever it is that's causing us to be oblivious, drugs, alcohol, but media, you know, there's all kinds of things that can make our mind disconnected from reality. And then it's really easy to be oblivious to how our thoughts, words, and actions contribute to harm. And we miss out on a very beautiful kind of happiness, the happiness of non-remorse. Like the heart feeling free of guilt. And even like a lot of times when you hear a talk like this, we might think, yeah, but I've done so many stupid things in the past. You know, we think about all the way back when we got our first magnifying glass as a seven-year-old and wondered what happens when you shine that bright light on ants. <laughs> and, and then on from there, basically, hitting our siblings and teasing kids at school and breaking our lovers' hearts and on and on and on, gloating and feeling we deserve what we have without being so concerned or caring about what the implications of having what we have. What are the implications of having what we have? So this whole... um, training in being a human being, a happy human being, it actually it points right to this moral sensitivity. Like in a Buddhist sense, you can't be a happy human being without really inhabiting morality. It's like that's what it means to be human, is this willingness to be sensitive. And and, no, and not to expect answers. Like, what does it mean that we're living on stolen land? Or what does it mean that so much of the wealth of this country arose out of economic systems that enslaved people? Right? Or that even today, you know, the way that economics work, that there are a lot of people working in very oppressive situations just getting by. And that the way we live causes a lot of environmental damage that causes all kinds of harm to humans and non-human humans. And so these five trainings, I think that's the right way to think about about them. You know, we really take them out undertaking the training not to harm, not to take what hasn't been given, not to cause harm with sexual energy, with speech, not to intoxicate the mind in ways that increase 
the probability of causing harm. So we do these trainings as a way toward happiness. And the invitation is like, does that, does that actually work? Because more straightforward, like if you want to be happy, this is one of the most straightforward ways to be happy. Like if a young person, you know, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old person came to me and asked, you know, Mark, if there's one thing, you know, I want to be happy, and if there's just one thing, I don't want it complicated to do to be happy, I might say something like, really get devoted to non-harming. It's probably the most straightforward way to feel good in your life. in a a very ordinary but real way. And even if you think, this is part of the training, is never to think that somehow we've already cleared the bar. We're already one of those people that don't cause harm. So I'm done with that training, and I'm on to the next one. I'm going toward Buddhist emptiness, you know, or letting go, or... You know, the way the path really works, as we do have some deeper insights, meditative insights, they really give us the kind of space and equanimity to actually get interested in this more messy but potent place in life of morality. It's messy because we never get done with it. Because what the thinking mind wants is just tell me what to do and not do. It's never clear, you know, how much money is too much. Or what do we do, like for those of us who are are white, what do we do about racial injustice? Or those of us who have a lot of money or other kinds of privilege? You know, how much responsibility do I have for, for my siblings or cousins or whatever that have been lazy in their lives and haven't really got their act together and now they have some needs. Or, you know, this other person in my life who didn't really take care of their body and now they need, you know, is it, should I, maybe I should just let them suffer because that's their karma. So, you know, it's just, when we say things like that out loud, it sort of like makes it clear, like how does that feel for me, let alone for them? What is it like to be living with that attitude? And how about if I'm not related to them? How about the person asking for money at the corner? You know, what is my? And and again, it's like it's not so much about them. The barometer is right here, our own heart and mind. Like, what is actually a cause for happiness? Ignoring the person, smiling at the person. I mean, really to check it out. I don't have the answer, but I'm interested. Right? Personally, I'm interested in like what actually leads to happiness. And that makes us a moral being. I mean, in a funny way, it's not, it's not right to say it's selfish, but it's common sense to want to pay attention to these places because it leads to, the, to well-being for us. And to n- neglect it is dangerous to neglect the implications of our thoughts, our words, our actions is really dangerous for us. 
And as I was about to say a few minutes ago, and then I lost track, but so we have this history, all of us, you know, different ways of making mistakes, of being, you know, immoral, <laughs> doing things that have caused harm. And then we think, oh God, I'm already so screwed. I'm just going to cruise to the end of this life, you know, and hope that the moral police don't catch up with me. I mean, isn't that how we think? This is, this is why Buddhist cosmology isn't something to believe in. It's something to use because it's skillful to use. So like, well, maybe there's future lives. You know, and whatever seeds I plant, it won't be me, but there will be another sensitive being reaping the seeds that are sown. Now, I'm not going to say that that's true definitively, but what I think I can say with a lot of confidence for, in terms of my own life, it's really skillful for me to imagine, as one of my teachers said, you don't get away with nothing, honey. <laughs> no, she said, darling. You don't get away with nothing, darling. Some of you maybe have listened to Ruth Dennison's talk. She's dead now. But she's, uh, did you sit with her, Marjorie? <laughs> she's a real trip. But it's really true. It really feels that way. Let me change that. It really feels skillful to think that way. Because that, what it does is it interrupts the idea that I've already done a lot of bad things. I seem to be getting away with it. I'm just going to go for it, you know. I don't really believe in Santa Claus or the guy with the beard up there who's keeping track. So I'm just going to do what I want to do. And, and it's really okay to try that, but the important thing if you're going to try, whatever you're going to try, is to be make sure that you're cultivating enough sensitivity to know whether that's really working for you and for others. Like, when we're really sensitive, can we be truly happy and at ease without being sensitive and caring about what's happening around us? Like it, it's really an ugly, unpleasant, oppressive thought, the thought, they don't matter, whoever the they is. It doesn't matter. It's not my responsibility. Immigrants don't matter, you know, or people who live over there or people who are like this don't matter. And we think, yeah, but it can't, it's just, I don't know what to do with that. Everything matters. Because we're, because we're used to thinking we're going to have a plan you know, a definitive, okay, everything matters and this is how that all looks. This is what you do and this is what you don't do. Because what are we replacing that with? Moment-to-moment -moment sensitivity. Morality is a moment-to-moment -moment thing. And the fruits of our actions, our thoughts, our words, we're reading right there in the moment. Because when we've done something, said something, thought something, said something, then the next moment, having just done whatever it is that we've done, then this heart and mind that we're, if we're 
trained, we can notice, oh, it feels like this now. And then we know the karma of having done what we just did. So we'll just get a sense of the person we're becoming, having just done, thought that, said that. Oh, yeah, this is what's getting set in motion. How's that working for me? You know, how does that feel? Does it feel right? Does it feel wrong? That's why in the Buddhist tradition we emphasize so much feeling safe and calm because when we're safe and calm, we'll actually be able to sense what we're setting in motion. And when we're not feeling safe and when we're not feeling calm, we're not sensitive. We're frazzled or reactive, or whatever we are, but we're not really sensitive. There's a, a discourse, a talk the Buddha gave that I really like because it, it, just, uh, it just points this out so much. Let me just read it for you. It's kind of nice to hear the Buddha's words every once in a while. One uh, translator translates the title of this talk as Two Kinds of Thoughts. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened practitioner, it occurred to me, suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of wanting, craving, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty, and I said on the other side, thoughts of renunciation, generosity, thoughts of non-ill will, kindness, and thoughts of non-cruelty, right? This devotion to non-harming. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of central desire, of wanting, ill will, cruelty, arose in me. I understood it thus. This unwholesome thought has arisen. Ah, this is being known, right? This leads to my own affliction, the affliction of others, the affliction of both myself and another. Right? So just imagine, you know, we're having some lust after somebody's t shirt in the room, or, you know, whatever it is, or some ill will. Somebody hurt you today, insulted you today, and you're just wanting them to, wanting something bad to happen to them. Right? So that's ill will. Oh, ill will's being known. And then we're looking, we're feeling into that pattern. We're not like trying to repress the ill will. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is not repress- repression of what is unwholesome. Mindfulness this path of awakening, we're awakening. So when the mind has ill will or greed, then we're awakening to ill will or greed. We're seeing it for what it is. Oh, this is the cause for my own affliction, and this is likely to be the cause for other people's affliction. This isn't helpful. This hurts, right? So... 
Let me just read that. And then the last point, he says, it obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from freedom, leads away from peace, liberation. So that's what we see. That's the practice, which is, which is really interesting because the Buddha's not saying, and then I let go of the ill will or I let go of the greed. No, no, we stay in that place because letting go would be a kind of judgment. Doesn't mean that letting go isn't good. Letting go is definitely good. Like when you have the ill will, obsess- obsessing your mind or you know, rattling about in your heart, hatred, wanting revenge, lusting, wanting, greed. Yeah, it would be great for that to be let go of. But the letting go happens because the mind, wisdom knows there is ill will and that it's a cause for harm for myself and for others, and it leads away from freedom, leads away from peace. Right? That's all we do as a practitioner. We see the destructiveness of what's unwholesome. And you'll see, then the Buddha talks about seeing the wholesomeness of what's wholesome. Because we often go too far thinking, stop it, Mark. But has that ever worked for you? It doesn't really work. What really works when you're doing something unskillful, what really works is to see very clearly in a non-judgmental way, honey, this is not helping. This is destructive for myself and for others. This really hurts. This is not going in the direction I want to go. Because it's seeing that that allows for the natural letting go. We keep doing unskillful things because we don't realize they're unskillful. Now, I mentioned that the precepts, undertaking the training not to harm, not to take what hasn't been given, not to harm with our sexual energy or with our speech, not to intoxicate the mind that increases the likelihood of causing harm. We think of this as a natural law that any human being, any being really that's sensitive enough, will see for themselves that when these attitudes are in the mind, like ill will, it causes harm. It's not that we need somebody else to tell us, thou shall not do this or that, because we can see directly that when there's that ill will, forget about other people, I see directly the harms right here. The heart, the mind that's covered or colored by ill will is a painful, unhappy mind. You know, a lot of those people that we see out in the world, people with power who maybe have some ignorance and are causing a lot of harm, you know, does anybody want to be those people or that person? No, nobody would want to be that person. Because even if they seemingly are oblivious to the harm they're causing, doesn't mean they're not suffering. Just because people don't know they're suffering doesn't mean they're not suffering. And then the Buddha gives this, uh, kind of sums it up. When I considered in this way, it, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought, an unwholesome thought, right, of greed, ill will, cruelty arose in me, 
it was abandoned, right? It fell away because I considered it in this way. There is this unwholesome thought. It's causing harm. It's not leading to release. It's not leading to freedom. And then he says, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Now that should scare us. Whatever a person, i.e. me, frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And that is what neuroscience now knows, right? I mean, we always sort of knew that, but now they can even do the brain science. So it's that line in neuroscience, things that fire together, wire together. I don't know if you've heard that, right? Because it's just easier to do what we've done before. So when we're feeling yucky and we go to movies or TV shows to fill up, to to block the yucky feeling or eat food to block the yucky feeling or drink alcohol or whatever it is we do, then that just becomes the inclination of the mind. And then it's harder and harder. And he gives the example of, he, he says, when a, whenever a, or, um, if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of greed, or will, cruelty, and not the thoughts of renunciation and kindness and compassion, right? then it's like the last month of the rainy season when the crops thicken and a cow herder would guard their cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that side with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because they see that they could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, and blamed if the cows were to wander through the crops, destroying the crops. So too, I saw in unwholesome states danger, right? Because we see that my mind is inclined to greed, my mind is inclined to anger, my mind is inclined to distraction and delusion and denial, right? So once we have this sort of moral sense, we realize like when my anger has been triggered, when my greed has been triggered, when my distraction and denial and delusion has been triggered, we realize, rightly so, I'm in danger. I could think, say, and do something stupid that would not be for my good or the good of others. So be careful, right? Do you know that feeling? We call it in Buddhism, the Buddha calls them the guardians of the world, hiri otapa, the Pali words. It's like this wholesome concern, wholesome fear even, wholesome regret, like, oh, I'm in the vicinity of danger. I've got exactly the qualities of mine that could lead me down a road where I say something to my partner or to my sibling, right? Because I bet there are people in this room that said something or some, you know, something happened between you and somebody you actually love and now you haven't been in relationship for a long time. Isn't that true? And it's like a, it can exist in our life as a real weight in our heart for decades. Some of those um, you know, breaks in relationships with family and loved ones. Or we do something stupid 
and really cause harm to ourselves or others, lose something that we really didn't want to lose. So the world is full of these. So initially, when we have a lot of those habit energies, we want to be like that hypervigilant cowherder that knows that the farmers are going to beat me if I, any of my cows go into the crops. So I'm just like frantic. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then he gives the example, but when we're cultivating wholesome thoughts, so instead of greed, letting go, they're letting go of renunciation or generosity. Instead of ill will, kindness. Instead of cruelty, compassion. Right? And they're the thoughts that are dominating or the intentions, motivations that are dominating. Then he gives the example, it's like a cow herder. Now that the crops have been harvested, now the farmers want the cattle to be in the fields pooping, fertilizing, right? So you can sit under a tree, you just know the cows are there. Because the mind is full of wholesome thoughts, generosity and kindness and compassion. And that's the happiness of non-remorse. Or another way it gets translated is the bliss of blamelessness. You know, when your thoughts, your mind states are mostly strongly wholesome, there's a real freedom in that. Like I I mentioned earlier in the talk, like self-esteem. I totally trust my heart right now. And it feels like a real gift. It is a real gift to be around somebody who's in that good place. We feel safe around them. That this person isn't going to, this person has a kind of natural integrity. They're not going to easily, they're not going to easily do something that would cause me harm. And we feel at ease with them. And then we like them. So it kind of comes around. This is the happiness of morality. So I'll talk more about it next week. Uh, actually, Shelley's teaching next week, but in, later in June on Wednesday nights. And then uh, on the 19th, David Loy, a, a well-known Buddhist teacher, um, is going to be talking about the environmental crisis, which really fits into this. Uh, he's written a recent book. He's a wonderful teacher. So if you're free on the 19th, uh, come for that. But I'll be keep picking this topic up for the next several weeks when I am teaching. But we do have about ten minutes, a little bit less. Be nice to hear from a few of you your own reflections about maybe examples from your life of actually experiencing the happiness of this non-remorse, this bliss of blamelessness, and the suffering that comes when we don't live this way. Hey, I got kind of a. The opposite of that, which is my my partner is a very sensitive person, and her sensitivity brings a lot of suffering to her. It's kind of like that bumper sticker: if you're not if you're not paying attention, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, right? So, what can you say about that kind of opposite experience? Where I don't know, I want, want to say you're too sensitive, but you're sensitive. You experience a lot of anger because things are so messed up. Uh, what do you do on that end of the scale versus those of us who just need to increase our sensitivity? Yeah, because the idea of being sensitive is to see that, like, what situation in our life would prevent us from acting with non-greed, 
non-ill will, non-cruelty. I mean, isn't there a way always, regardless of the situation we're in, like just refraining from acting on it is a beautiful thing. So I think that's the key when we're sensitive to this world is to realize we can contribute. There's always a way to plant a positive seed. Even if all, all we're capable of in a given moment is, it's not easy being a human being and really being forgiving in that way. right? Or just like, I want to help, but I don't know how to help. But I'm at the ready. If something were to arise, some clarity where it seemed like I could contribute, then I'll contribute. And it really, it kind of corrects, like it is a, it can be a painful transition where what we thought was going to lead to happiness, like hoarding is a common myth that we think by hoarding, having a lot, we're going to be happy. Now, that doesn't mean the opposite of not hoarding doesn't mean not having anything. It just means abandoning the idea that hoarding itself is a cause for happiness. And then it really frees us up because otherwise we're going down a road that's just suffering. You know, and it's like we may not hit the wall, but at some point we're going to hit the wall when we realize whatever we've accumulated. We, we don't take it with us, you know, that it doesn't actually, and that it's been such a burden our whole life chasing that dream, whatever it was, you know, to have a lot. So that, I guess the short answer is like, how can I do one thing now in this moment that feels beautiful, that feels wholesome? And I'll pay attention to that. The world's always been messy. So, it's like, at least I don't have to work at denying that truth. So what's one thing I can do now that's positive? And I really sense that, oh yeah, this is a wholesome thing. I'm the one, the mind stream now is the mind that did that one wholesome thing. It's like counting your blessings. At the end of the day, this is actually a Buddhist practice, to reflect on the day, all the moments of wholesome refrain, refraining from doing unwholesome things, all the moments of doing positive things. And that's like, allows us to sleep well. Like, oh yeah, I did some good today. And I refrained from doing bad today. And that feels really good. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah. Marjorie. So, um, so I have a, a question about when um, this would be more in a relational context, uh, an irritation arises in the mind and in the heart. And my practice has been that if, I kept, if I'm mindful enough to catch that, that I, that I don't do anything with it one way or the other except pay attention to it, and impermanence does the work of letting go. Yeah. Now, not feeding it then allows impermanence to do the work. You know, we're not renewing whatever, because by being mindful of the ill will, we're not feeding it. That's why mindfulness works. When I'm just there in that non judging but clear recognition, oh, yeah, there's ill will in the mind, 
Because what feeds it is identifying with the ill will. So, so some question then arises when, as you were speaking about um, same situation, ill will arises in the mind, and, but, but this approach, as I was understanding it, has this, um, there's, there's a way of, of framing it that, you can see, I've I'm I'm, I'm got some confusion here. Where there's an there's a, a person that there's an I that says this is bad for all of all of those mm-hmm. logical reasons, and it feels like there's a way of skirting the experience by ref, by ju- by reflecting on it and its consequences that can be an avoidance to. This this is this is what it is right now. This, uh, so yeah. I, so I'm going. I'm going. It's like yeah, because there's two sort of approaches. When the mind is more stable and clear, then we can go right to what you were saying, Marjorie, of just seeing it's just a will being known and being patient for a few moments and letting you, as you said, impermanence do the work. And the imperm- and then the ill will falls away, and there's some freedom. But a lot of the times we're not, the power of mindfulness isn't that strong, right? And we do feel somewhat identified with the ill will. And so that's where that hiriotipa, that like, oh yeah, I'm like that cow herder with a bunch of cows going in places they shouldn't be going. I have to be vigilant here. I have to really keep seeing it and keep uh, sort of tapping, like don't take it personally, don't act it out, don't, because... I know I'm in danger. So it has a more self-centered vibe, right? right? Because morality, this level of morality, is really coming from self-view still. But that's okay because that's where we are most of the time. We're we're really approaching our life from a self-point of view. So this happiness of morality is really on this basic, ordinary level that we refer to all the time, like, I want to be happy. Oh, you want to be happy? In that self-centered way, great, it's good, it's appropriate to want to be happy. Pay attention to your sila. Really get, really become devoted to non-harming. And on an ordinary level, you will become a happier human being. And when we look around, and I'll end with this point, who are the most unhappy people? They're often the people that have been causing harm for themselves and others, right? Not very careful around greed and what they are greedy for, not very careful about their anger, right? And they get themselves into really hellish states. And we've been those people for times of our lives. We're we're the ones in those hellish states. But we need to leave it here, just to take a few seconds and let go of the words. You can pass the mic back to Kathy behind you. Let's just take one or two breaths together to end the evening. Enjoy the silence. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. I think most of you know, but if you're new, you might not. 
know that Common Ground offers all of its programs freely. It's really a free gift, and it's a free gift because of everything that everyone has done in the past to build this place and to you know, offer support so that we have an office staff and the teachers get support for their livelihood. So please practice receiving everything at Common Ground. It's a free gift, no strings attached. And I don't assume that that's easy. It's not easy for me, so I don't assume it's easy for you. To really let it land is a beautiful free gift. And then when and if you feel inspired to give back because it makes you happy, then practice giving in a way that makes you happy, whatever that looks like in your particular circumstances. And we've been operating this way for over 25 years. Our budget is you know, somewhere between $350,000 and $400,000 a year. And that happens in this beautiful way of giving and receiving freely. And we don't talk about money very much. Usually just once a month I say something like I'm saying right now. We don't do fundraising. But all of this has come because of people's generosity. And presumably there are a lot of people who are happy because of what they've given. Because that's the only reason to give. Because it makes it feel good. You know, what is the impression it leaves on your heart? If you give too much, it won't feel good. If you don't give anything, it may not feel good. Unless, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense to give anything. But anyway, you can find out more on the website or you can talk to Kathy or me. There's a sheet by the donation bowl if you want more details. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.